Hello, this is Cracking Charity Chat and I'm Beth Crackles. Thanks for tuning in. In this episode, I'm chatting with Wayne Murray, who is Strategy Director at the agency Audience. And we're talking about organisational and funding strategy post-COVID-19. We talk about what has changed for charities during COVID-19, the need for transformational change, particularly in relation to fundraising, the great ways of working that we've seen during the crisis and that we'd like to see the sector retain, and who nailed their fundraising and communications recently, with nods to RNLI, AGK and Refuge in particular. Wayne also wanted to chat about horses, so we did that too. I hope that you enjoy it. If you do, please feel free to share on social media and connect with me on Twitter at Beth Crackles and also on LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Hello, Wayne. Hello, Beth. How you Hello. doing? Big All wave. right. All right. It's strange doing things in the virtual world. Yes, it but, is. It's yeah. nice how we all fit into the same size rectangular boxes now. That's good. Neat and tidy. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about funding strategy and organisational strategy because you can't really differentiate. Well, you can differentiate, but you can't uh, completely separate the two. That was going to be my final point. You've totally stolen the big reveal of my podcast. End. (laughs) Yes, we are. Oh, okay. Glad we're clear on that. Um, Do you want to give us a bit of an introduction about yourself? like what yeah. you're doing now and a bit about your background and okay. tell us about where you got those glasses from that nobody will be able to see you like them they look high fashion that well i am you know pretty high fashion myself as, as yeah. normal yeah so i'm i'm wayne i'm a fashion icon in the fundraising sector <laughs> <laughs> uh no I, i'm wayne uh i've been working in fundraising comms and brand for over 20 years now so I stumbled into fundraising last century I I suppose what's weird about me is I spent half my career charity side and half agency side so charity side I've been head of IG for Amnesty Um, I've been director of fundraising and brand refugee action just at the peak of the refugee crisis Uh, and I was also director of fundraising comms at prisons abroad which is universally regarded as one of the trickiest charities in the UK to raise money for um mm. and i suppose the sort of golden thread throughout all of those charity side roles was was about step change and transformation and about kind of mobilizing people um which is kind of what what my what my jazz is and so now i am strategy director at audience which is an agency based just outside of brighton conveniently close to where i live audience does sort of two things it's strategy and uh, creative execution and so thinking stuff and doing stuff uh, and I head up on the strategy side of things so that involves organizational strategy fundraising strategy product development innovation and sort of shouting at boards and directors to kind of do things differently and uh, yeah and the pandemic has kind of thrown a lot of that into sharp relief at the moment which has been quite interesting oh okay I'm just going to shut the window because the cars are noisy. Showing off about my windows again. Yeah, Beth's got two windows in her living room. <laughs> two windows in, in one room. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're recording live from the West Wing just past the stable. <laughs> I wanted to ask a question about audience. Is it predominantly individual giving then that you work on? Weirdly, it, yeah, it started off like that. Like, roll back two or three years, my role would be very much about looking at fundraising programs and from an individual giving perspective and seeing how we could do things better but then as you sort of touched on at the start everything is kind of interlinked so Mm. it started off with individual giving then it looked at fundraising as a whole and then the strategy work sort of broadened out to trying to break down those inherent silos between fundraising campaign and communication and then started to look at kind of service delivery and then all of a sudden it became about sort of organizational transformation so that's kind of where my head is at at the moment i've been speaking to a lot of service design people and and that's kind of where it is you know like i wrote a blog ages ago about how all fundraising problems were organizational problems i think you know that's kind of where it's at at the moment so it's hard to sort of pigeonhole um and to put into a nice nice bullet point but it's about 
how organizations function and especially in light of the pandemic there's lots of stuff going on at the moment about who are we what should what should we be doing what have we been doing wrong all that sort of stuff so yeah. big questions yeah on a small budget <laughs> <laughs> yeah zero budget <laughs> Okay, right. Let's start. Let's start talking about that. Then let's start talking about COVID nineteen. And what I wanted to kick off with is what has changed for the sector. I think Helen Barnard at Joseph Rowntree Foundation did some comms a bit ago, and she described it as um, same storm, different boat. And that feels pretty much spot on for organisations and individuals as well. It feels like we've all had very different, unique experiences from it. Um, but yeah. some research out there that I've been looking at by CAF and from Blue Frog as well, that has given a sense of like what's going on. But where where are you at with that? Yeah, no, good, good that you mentioned that. Like, I think big shout out to Mark Phillips and the team at Blue Frog, because I think a lot of the stuff that they're pumping out at the moment is is really relevant and brilliant and, you know, no agenda, just genuinely interesting stuff, especially all that stuff about how people who have quite entrenched views on the sort of charities that they support and have done for years and years are now looking further afield in terms of what's going on in, in, in terms of the pandemic. So there's, there's massive changes going on in, in kind of how people view charities and, and what charities mm-hmm. that they're willing to support. But from my perspective, so if you roll back like two or three years, I have been banging my head against the wall for the last three years about transformational change and how the sector needs to up its game and how from a fundraising perspective the fundraising machine is broken and people are just pulling different combinations of the same levers it was all about at best incrementalism and at worst kind of managed decline with a lot of fundraising programs and a lot of fundraising strategies and you know people it was a real uphill battle you know it's like pushing a rock up a hill and lots of tinkering around the edges of really big problems and all that sort of stuff and and people not agreeing that the fundraising machine was broken even though when you say that sorry to interject but when you say when you say transformational change what do you mean by that my second question um, around the fundraising machine is broken my assumption is that you're referring predominantly to that being unable to recruit at the kind of scale that we did before yeah, kind of. I think it's just, you know, you know look at the, the fundraising model hasn't really changed for the last 15 to 20 years, even though society and, and, and the world at large has. And I think people are sort of chasing historic ways of fundraising and, that, you know, that volume driven fundraising model um, has kind of had its day. And, uh, and rather than looking at transformation and how to do things totally different in a big scalable way, People have, you know, looked at kind of implementing small innovation teams that are on the side. That's kind of nice to have rather than a, something that's actually going to change things. And then interestingly, when the pandemic came along, you know, you had this machine that was broken, in my opinion. And then the pandemic set it on fire and then it fucking exploded. And that's kind of what the fundraising machine is. And I think then a lot of people sort of stood around and went, do you know what? This is broken. Whilst I shut myself in a cupboard and screamed in a mirror for a couple of days, so mm. you know, that that's kind of where we are. But um, you know, it's not all it's not all negative. I think what's come out of this has been some pretty astonishing things. You know, that mm. big decisions have been made quite quickly. Um, we've shifted our entire working methodology overnight to more remote ways of working and on the whole it seems to be working so if we can do something as transformational as that so quickly what what else can we do moving forward Mm. your presentation that you did for fundraising everywhere was that the like the one that simon and nikki pulled together in like a day or something ridiculous like that for covid19 Um, And you did one, I think, on funding strategy and the points that came out of that, there were some really great ones from you on culture. And one of the examples that you gave, which I'm totally using now in my training on how people should (laughs) behave with their staff and give them leeway to actually get on with their jobs, is I think you mentioned with digital teams, there was a marked improvement when in like August or something when the SMT was on holiday because (laughs) the digital team just actually got on with stuff. So I think there's great learning around around that in terms of how we empower our teams to do stuff. Um, 
and also sort of new skills that have cropped up that we maybe didn't know that a trustee had this amazing skill or people who have been redeployed to the front line can actually do this thing amazingly well. So stuff like that about how we work just better across and throughout our organisations. Yeah, totally. I've, I've got this real belief that what's come out of the pandemic, because a lot of this was sort of forced on us, is that it's about humanity, not hierarchy. In a, in a lot of mm. cases, the lines of hierarchy are being blurred quite a lot. And a, a lot of that is because when it all kicked off, SLT teams had to focus on really big issues, you know, like, you know, furloughing, cutting service delivery, all of that sort of big organisational stuff. And it was left to, you know, mid-level managers to get on and 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 actually drive real-time fundraising and, and engagement in the pandemic. And I think that's the way it should be, you know, in a lot of cases. And I hope a lot of that sort of carries forwards as we go because people are amazing and they, they can do absolutely brilliant things. And, yeah, like I said at the Fundraising Everywhere thing, I was in the height of that at the time because I'm a trustee for a hospice down in Brighton, Martlets, who we're doing exactly that you know it's just like we've got this community of people they can't do the jobs that they want to do at the moment but what can they do how can they how can they help us how can we apply their skills elsewhere and i think that's that's a really innovative way of looking at things i hope yeah so shifting things back to like more outside of our, our organizations there's a blog that calf did maybe i don't know three or four weeks ago or something about some of the changes and some of the themes that are going to be discussed within and beyond the sector. And I think it's written by Roger Davies, who I think is possibly a genius. So I have to concentrate really hard when I listen to his podcast and read his stuff. But I've sort of pulled out a few of the things from the blogs so that I can share them within the training that I do. And some of them are sort of building on stuff that we already knew that was happening and change that we already knew that was happening. So things like decentralised movements, like, I don't know, Me Too, Extinction Rebellion, that don't necessarily have a headquarters in London and that kind of hierarchy, stuff like that. And then people taking, taking things upon themselves, you know, in social action, just off their own backs not necessarily being asked to asked to engage with a charity to do it. But I guess COVID-19 has sort of maybe accelerated some of those things a little bit. You know, how we've seen through the COVID-19 mutual aid models and things like that. So that's kind of interesting. But other things, and I think we're not entirely clear on it, are things like what is the social need going to be like? And how can organisations start thinking about that and start planning for that? Because we know that there's going to be like like mental health issues are going to be like off the scale, aren't they? We already know that. We know that there are going to be huge issues around education, like right from like reception through to higher education. We know we know these sort of things. I'm wondering how organisations are starting to think about that, that will then inform their organisational strategy and funding strategy. Have yeah, you yeah. got? Any thoughts on that's quite rangy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But over to you, Wayne. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. I think that issue of decentralisation is massively important. If we wind back to how our working methodology has changed, I think that sort of throws it into sharp relief. Like I've had this whole thing for ages now that charities, a lot of charities, are quite not only institutional, but institutionally arrogant and inward-looking in terms of how they how they view the world and how they view their, their role in the world. Um, and, you know, I used to work at, when I worked at Amnesty, for example, you know, beautiful building, absolutely fantastic. But, you know, it's quite constraining as well, in a way that, you you know, you feel part of this big building, you feel part of this big institution you feel that this weight on you you know that's in a little bubble in short in shortage you know and, and all that sort of stuff and I think by breaking like physically and metaphorically breaking down those walls those institutional walls and realizing what you actually are as an organization and what you are is a loose community of people that all have a role to play you know and that's that bleeds out into your relationship with the general public with government with with all sorts of stuff so it's kind of viewing it in a different in a, in a much more different way and i think that decentralization 
aspects and kind of harnessing where the movements are and kind of using them works really well. You know, I, I used a, a metaphor around, you know, what's his name? Colonel Tom, Major Tom. Yeah. Whatever. You know, how that, even though that was really brilliant and what a cool guy, but that was a symptom of what was going on with society. Do you know what I mean? That we were all caged. Our humanity was caged. We were stuck in our own houses. We couldn't fucking do all the stuff that we wanted to do. We felt a bit helpless. And then uh, this one dude came along, started doing something. Everyone jumped on it. And the media jumped on that, gave it traction, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. So it was a symptom of what what's going on. And there has been like a real outpouring of, you know, money and help from, from the general public during the pandemic, which has been brilliant. You know, people did that because they wanted to do that. It was on their terms rather than on, on charity's terms. And my real hope going forward is that, that that kind of humanity that's been amplified by people in lockdown isn't just machine gun fired into a, a normal sort of individual giving program because it's a time to think about, okay, what's really going on and what, what do people want and what do people need? So that's mm-hmm. your first point. Your second point about going forward and what's needed is that like, I run a lot of workshops which are about transformation and kind of how do we make a big step change rather than a little incremental one and i always start those workshops by going right okay let's get all the crap out of the way all the woes all the things that really piss you off um, about the organization all the silos all the p- things that are holding back and all that sort of stuff and it would it would be hard to pull it back from that point because that would sort of run away in terms of a discussion but now I sort of frame it a bit differently and go, and especially in light of the pandemic, sort of go, okay, so this charity doesn't exist at the moment now, but we're setting up this, this charity as a startup. So as a startup, what would this charity need? What's the need? How do we fulfill that need? What hierarchy and, and what sort of kind of infrastructure do we need to do that? And it's been really interesting how pe- people kind of really latch onto that and it's a it's a very different conversation than it was historically and I think that's kind of what charities need to do going forward it's just like okay mm. for a line in the sand we've got this heritage we've got this history we've got this you know whatever but if we were starting out today what would we look like and what is our relevance and that's another point I want to touch on this weird issue of relevance but yeah go for it no go that. let's do it go let's do it now um <laughs> It's there's two words, and I've probably been just as responsible as everyone else during this pandemic that keep coming across again and again and again. One is pivot, um, which you know, my fundraising everywhere um thing actually had in the title, so I'm guilty of that as well. But one is relevance, you know, and it's about what is what is our relevance in this crisis. Um, and I think it's a really interesting thing that it took a pandemic for charities to actually think about relevance seriously. Um, and once again, highlights that kind of institutional arrogance that a lot of charities have that, you know, we're here because we're a charity and because we're because we're good. And, you know, that, that a lot of the immediate work that I was doing off the back of the crisis, the crisis was all that emergency comm stuff, you know, fundraising appeals, um, emergency plans about finding people's relevance in the crisis. And then one um, CEO said to me at one point, which is really interesting. I suppose when all this dies down, we're going to have to think of our, our relevance going forward, aren't we? And I thought, that is such an interesting comment that a penny has dropped for a CEO that relevance is really important. Um, yeah. Shows, shows a lot. But for me, like, relevance is about asking why, and that's what charities need to do a lot more of going forward, because when you keep asking why, you get to the truth. Like, for example... Scroll back 18 months, lots of charities were all thinking about overarching propositions. You know, we need we need a thing, you know, a no child board to die or, a, you know, whatever, that all of our fundraising comes can, can sit under. And, you know, I'd sit over the whiteboard and go, okay, so, so what do you do? And then you would get all the comms lines coming out, you know, we exist, blah, blah, we do this, we do that. They say, why? Um, why? Well, we do that because people would get a bit stuck. But if you keep asking why, then you get to the genuine, genuine relevance of, of what you're doing, and that's when you get to the truth. Um, yeah. So that's just quite quite an interesting aside and a rant on relevance. 
Yeah, I do something a little bit similar, actually, in like case for support workshops when we're talking about like, why do you exist? Um, like, what is the social need that you're actually tackling? And um, yeah, there's a there's a great example from an arts charity that I'm working with who I love because they're lovely and they're just brilliant and they're a joy to write about. But when I first met with them and said, so what, what is the social need that you're tackling? They'd be like, well, teachers are really stressed. P things like um, English as a second language, domestic abuse at home. This is, why, this is why we are needed. But then actually when we sort of, we spent about 45 minutes talking about all the reasons why this charity existed. And then the chief exec said, well, the problem is that the arts are disappearing from our schools. And I was like, that's, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is why you do this. Ten points you... to Gryffindor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and all of this other stuff is completely relevant. Um, yeah. But it's not like the main reason. It's like the number of other supporting reasons for it. But it takes that kind of annoying thing of asking why about 100 times um, to actually get to it, doesn't it? Isn't it interesting? And I bet you've found this as well. Like, I've been doing this weird thing where I've just been talking to loads of people, um, which has been really, really fun. We can chat about that in a bit if you mm. like. But one of, one of the key things that's coming across, particularly from like mid-level people, is that a lot of the bullshit is gone. Do you know what I mean? And because we're having to work differently and because speed and agility is of, of the essence, a lot of the bullshit that we have to deal with and all the sign-up processes and all the egos and whatever have just fallen to one side and we're just getting on and, and doing the work and I think that's that's what needs to kind of drift through as well as, as we continue you know we, we need to look back and remember that there was a time where all of that nonsense that held us back disappeared mm. for a little bit and we could get on and do stuff so. but one of the things that I wanted to talk about was like the good bits that we should keep from during the crisis so we can we can maybe cover that now but I also wanted to cover like who's who's totally nailed this maybe we do who's nailed it first and then we and then we come back to the bits we should, should keep because there are charities that I think um would be great to hear your examples on this but I think one of the first ones sort of out of the box or whatever the <laughs> whatever the metaphor is that I'm really mixing your metaphors there yeah <laughs> <laughs> A charity that really Box. nailed the the um what is it when the hot racehorses go out of the stalls? Out of the, chaps, out the, the chaps, I don't even know what that means. You agree with keeping horses in boxes? Oh, I suppose they do have boxes. They, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, do. horses. I have box. a degree in equine science, you know. I should be able to come Jesus. up with this. I've got Niche. an MA in I've got an MA in sculpture and I thought I had the most useless degree <laughs> I've ever heard of. Jeez. Now, I tell you what, trying to get a what job is in equine science. Oh my goodness, horse stuff. What? Scientific horse, horse stuff. stuff. Horses Scientific. in white coats. <laughs> exactly, exactly that, yeah. Wow. Yeah, you put a shoe get... on a horse. How do you put a shoe on a horse? Can you put a shoe on a horse? Do they teach you that? Uh, no, I'm not a farrier. No. Uh, I see. Um, I just know quite a lot of stuff. And then uh, I decided at the end of that that I probably wanted to travel about and see stuff and explore the world a little bit and also my mum moved abroad so I didn't have anywhere to live so I moved to London like uh, the Pied Piper yeah, yeah. I've got a question about horses that no one has ever been able to ask and maybe you oh god I feel the pressure but no no it's, a really, it's one I've had since I was six years old so why do horses let people put saddles on them and ride them around why, why do they do, why are they okay with that it's weird isn't it it is weird. And like, I grew up with this, like, from a very, very young age, like the pictures of me as a child, I'm the youngest of four. So the, I mean, there are hardly any pictures of me as a child, because like, they got bored by the time I turned yeah, right. up. But so the pictures of me are like, like, literally sat behind a pony in like a little bonnet and stuff like that. It just really just looks hugely unsafe. And um, so yeah, it was just like, I totally grew up with all of this. But I think <laughs> this is going off topic, isn't it? <laughs> it's on my agenda. You're not getting the email. <laughs> did not get the briefing on this. <laughs> There's a real relationship between 
animal and human is the the same as there would be between like a person and a dog you know our yeah. dogs are like ultimately hugely faithful and 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 you know as a result can be quite badly abused it's a similar sort of thing with horses um, there you go cleared up yeah i'm not going to go into it anymore because it's just going <laughs> to it will blow my mind it's going to get weird <laughs> all right where were um, we and I was just about to talk about RNLI. I feel like I should have oh, yeah. an equine charity now. But um, RNLI put out that incredible and very moving video right at the beginning, which I'm sure you must have seen, which was basically saying, you've been there for us. We want you to know that we're here for you. We basically recognise that you're all having a really difficult time. And that's it. There was no like, and we need you more than ever and all of this it was just like genuinely thank you and stay safe kind of thing yeah it was great it brought a tear to my eye you know but my my steely cold heart was was warmed by that yeah it's, it's a great stuff and I, I think in terms of who's nailing it like there's the obvious ones like there's a lot of stuff about refuge and domestic violence and, mm. and that but their, their stuff is absolutely flying and and rightly so but then interestingly like laurie bolt and the team at aguk they're, they're absolutely smashing it as well and i think that the, the those touch points of like right who is actually massively affected by this pandemic you know and you know elderly people and you know people trapped in domestic violence situations those were all really really making people think you know universally um, which is good. Um, I think yeah. there's there's been other things as well. Like a lot of a lot of the stuff that I was being asked to do, that I just didn't have an answer for at all. Was like the brief would be, we are completely focused on community and events, and, and none of that can happen. So come up with a brilliant online thing that people can do, and if you could have that now by five o'clock, and we can launch it tomorrow, that'd be absolutely brilliant. I didn't have an idea in my head at all for any of that sort of stuff, but. I think what happened with the 2.6 challenge was really, really brilliant because it wasn't um, dictated at all. Mm. It wasn't like, this is the thing that you do and here is the, um, the, the portal to give money. It was given the responsibility over to the individuals in a, like, a loose brief, 2.6, run with it, bake a cake, um, ride a horse, do whatever you want to do. And I think that that way of kind of enabling people to do things off their own back because you know people do people have been training for the marathon you know all year and whatever these are really driven brilliant people who can't do the things that they wanted to do so rather than trying to pigeonhole them into your online event give them the reins of the horse and let them come up with their oh own. God. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not going to use that metaphor anymore but you know what i mean i, I think yeah, little things yeah. like that have been really brilliant actually and, and it opened got, it up to more people as well, because yeah. 2.6 meant that anybody could do anything, basically, didn't it? Yeah. I said yeah. I was going to eat 2.6 sausage rolls, um, and then some brilliant person said, well, I don't see how many sausage rolls you can eat in 26 minutes. So how many did you eat? 26? I, I, bot I bottled it in the end, but, um, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe next year. <laughs> I could probably do. During the second peak? Yeah, during um, the second I could put away five sausage rolls. Five? Yeah, proper ones, not the little. Parts. Yeah, I mean, I could. Yeah, I could do that now. All right. Well, maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's a challenge right there. I'm not sponsoring you for five sausage rolls. Jesus. Thought <laughs> <laughs> we were mates. Anyway. I want to go back to the back to the good stuff because we sort of named charities, but we didn't really say what they'd done. So what has Refuge done that you think has been really brilliant? They've done loads of Facebook and sort of social media paid for yeah, stuff. The stuff that I've seen has been predominantly social, but what I think is is good about them and what every decent agile strategy needs is the ability to scale when it's the right moment. And I think that's what they did really well, do you know what I mean? And, you know, in, in other organisations, that even if something's doing well, that kind of case for investment quickly like you know we need to treble quadruple whatever investment in this because it's going really well it's sometimes the death of of that because it takes too long to, to to get that signed off and that's what i've seen you know i hadn't really 
refugees weren't really on my radar an awful lot and then bang they're everywhere and I think that ability to kind of be agile and to scale quickly that that's the I'm sure there are many other brilliant things about the work that they're doing, but that's what really stuck home for me. Yeah, that's interesting. It's not just about, well, obviously they've got the right creative and and they're using the right channels and that, but yeah, it is that more sort of fundamental way of working behind, isn't it? And that kind of culture to be like, right, yeah, dial it up a bit. Mate, everything boils back to people and culture. Whatever your problem yeah. is, that's, that's the answer. If you can solve that, then you can solve it everything else just takes into place yeah cool okay so let's move on to the good bits that we should keep that we've learned from um COVID-19 because we were aiming to keep this like really upbeat and (laughs) positive weren't we and I realised I just mentioned the second speak (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks for that we can end that there I I think there's been loads of good stuff and I think I think connection has been the key thing for me and people, you know, I was really worried when lockdown started that people were just going to get their blinkers on, you know, look down rather than look up and, 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 you know, be in a, be in a pit of misery somewhere. But I've seen, I've seen really brilliant, you know, it's that thing of that caged humanity thing that I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. It's like when everyone, when everyone is constrained, like these weird things pop out, like whack-a-mole of really brilliant things. So, you know, you've got like Joe McGuinness doing those brilliant handwritten mm. messages for people. Have you seen that? You know, yeah, I have, yeah. Really, really yeah. lovely. And then I was talking to, who was I talking about that? Someone, it wasn't, knew a lot less about horses um, the other week. I'm just saying that like, you know, people proactively go in, do you know what? People are furloughed, people are worried about redundancies. Um, if anyone needs a reference, just just let me know. You know. I think that, I think Paul de Gregorio did something like that, was. didn't he? Yeah. Like if you need an introduction or anything like that. Yeah. And Beth Upton set up that um, furlough group. Yeah. Furlough tears or something like that. I don't it's remember not, the name of it. The name of it. Yeah. It does sound like I've made. I don't feel. I don't sound very confident about it, do I? Furlough tears. <laughs> yeah. I think I think I think that's a key thing about supporting supporting each other. You know. And, yeah. You know, I did, I, I did this thing recently where I was saying about how I was getting the wrong way around, so I need to make sure I say it properly. That like, wouldn't for a sector leader's job description in the future, wouldn't it be brilliant if like fifty percent of your time as a sector leader was about sorting out your own organisation, fifty percent of your time was working cross-sector um, on how to change civil society for, for everyone, you know, and, mm. and wouldn't that be a brilliant job, job description? And I think that what's happening in lockdown is that those connections, those cross-organisational connections just between people are kind of happening a lot more and bringing us all closer together. So, mm. you know, it's certainly, it's certainly helped me, you know, just reaching out and talking to people and having chats, with no agenda, and, you know, with the sole aim getting behind the LinkedIn profile and just having a chat with a human being about how they're getting on and you know what what a good day and what a bad day looks like it's been really hard mm. and I think you know internally what that means as well is that you know we're talking about those blurred lines in terms of hierarchy I think that's happening internally as well that people are connecting in in a, in a deeper way with the people they work with just because you know you understand that so and so over there has got a toddler, and they, you know they can't. They might not be in this meeting, or they might not have a camera on, or someone's having a bad day over here. And I think you know they, those things weren't really so front and centre pre-pandemic. So I think things like that are really, really, really important, um, and certainly has helped me a lot. Yeah, it's nice actually getting a glimpse of people's lives. And their massive living rooms with <laughs> yeah. all that lighting. Ross McCulloch, my last podcast guest. So your last one? No, actually, it was the one before. I think in terms of the order that I put them out, I recorded him on the same day as Nathan Sparling, but actually I think Nathan was last. Um, but yeah, I recorded on the same day. And Ross, <laughs> Ross at the beginning of lockdown had said, had tweeted like one of his learnings from all these Zoom meetings is that some people's kitchens have cost more than his entire house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that really cracked me up. 
you know what? Like storage solutions as well. Like, man, I really need to up my... Well, I'm stuck in a box here now. I haven't got anything there. But people yeah. have some amazing storage solutions. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and people have, like, got, like, their amazing bookshelf behind with, like, very cool, very intellectual books, perhaps and with the odd kind of trashy one thrown in to show that they, you know, they have a, a, a wide-ranging taste. Have you um, messed around with Zoom backgrounds? tried because I wanted a Yorkshire tea one in the background but I couldn't because it just sort of <laughs> nobody would be able to see that <laughs> that's actually incredible for the purposes of our listeners I'm now a member of Run DMC thanks to the Zoom backdrops there uh, yeah I'll take that off that will uh... you need to bling up a bit as well yeah I think so <laughs> we've gone off topic again that's that's that's, that's um... why I'm here yeah, so getting an insight into people's lives. So yeah, we had the like the bookshelves and the expensive kitchens and what have you. There's an absolutely glorious tweet from the University of York English Department. She's very professional. She sat at her desk and she's talking to the camera about what life is going to be like in September. And even if there are changes, um, they're going to support students through it and some things might be online. <laughs> her two-year-old comes in and literally starts dressing her in like <laughs> plastic pearls. And she just keeps on talking as if it's completely normal to be talking about higher education while being dressed in like in plastic pearls. And um, yeah, I think that went viral because of that. Oh, it's weird though, isn't it? Because yeah. like at the start of lockdown, when we all sort of embraced Zoom and Teams and all of that, like my biggest fear on day one would have been that my nine-year-old son bursts in and does a Mooney or or, yeah. or something like that. And like twelve weeks later, I go for your life, mate. I really yeah. don't. That's you keep threatening. I've taught him how to do the silent duck. Does that translate? <laughs> You know, you know, where you make a fart noise under your arm. Yeah. I think I've, I've taught him to do that, which has been the best thing that I've ever done as a, as a father to my son. And he keeps threatening to burst in on a Zoom meeting and do it, and he hasn't done it yet. So if, I'll, I'll let you know how that gets. <laughs> yeah. But he did post you a note about, do you want pancakes under the door, didn't he? He did, yeah. Pancake. That's very cute. Yeah, well, yeah, it, that, was a, that was a good day for him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, little things like that. Pancake club on a on a Monday morning because Monday mornings were really hard. Has has helped. Yeah, I'd, I'd suggest you do it yourself. Twenty minutes of eating and then four hours of cleaning flour off the ceiling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we we've made our own play doh recently because play doh is expensive and we don't want to get a load of deliveries. Yeah. Primarily, it's expensive, so we were like, right, let's. <laughs> let's get involved and then yeah it's quite sticky the homemade stuff is quite flour sticky. and water what how yeah um maybe like some baking powder or something okay. food coloring we've got like 100 different food colors it feels like yeah but it's basically everywhere it's been like ground into the carpet i mean yeah the house is a it's basically been destroyed during lockdown that's one of the one yeah, of I the think, more stressful things i think i banned play-doh just because and that sand stuff, jeez. Oh, yeah, we don't do sand. We're not getting involved with sand. Glitter. No no glitter in my house. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the good bits that we're keeping yeah. from COVID-19 are like a bit of real life, like understanding people real life, connect it, connecting with each other and across organisations. Sounds good. You're doing brilliantly. Keep going. What were the other bits that we've we've talked about? Genuine purpose, you know, that real relevance. Humanity over hierarchy. Yeah. I like that saying. Is that your saying or did you That's hear me somewhere is. nick it? Nah, no, I don't think so. Unless I, that, I, li- I like it. Yeah. Humanity it's over but- hierarchy. Yeah. I'll tell you what though, I'll, t- I'll tell you a thing about that. I've been talking to a lot of service design people and, you know, a lot of people-centred design and kind of how leaders need to show their vulnerability and it makes you more of a three-dimensional person and all that and this person I was speaking to that she was saying what's really interesting is that people really latch onto the tactics and not the intent of this sort of way of working and I'll get I'll give you an example have you noticed like especially on Twitter a lot of senior people are using tweet notes like weekly just like a weekly oh, yeah. roundup yeah, yeah, yeah. like you know this is my thought for today like you know, keep 
keep going, show your, show your vulnerability, all, all that sort of stuff. And it's all really great. You know, what a brilliant thing, senior leaders publicly um, sharing their vulnerability. But this person I was speaking to was sort of saying that, like, people aren't grasping the fact that, you know, the, the intent is to show your vulnerability and to blur the lines of hierarchy and to change the way in which you um, operate. And they've just latched onto this tactic of tweet notes. So what actually happens with a lot of people is that instead of taking that on board and, and, and changing, they're just amplifying their vulnerability. Look at me, I'm way more vulnerable than you. My vulnerability is getting 10 times more likes than your vulnerability is. And what an interesting dynamic that is that yeah. you know, you've, got to, you've got to embrace the intent rather than the tactics. Interesting and deep. That's quite deep. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> right. Shall we? What, should... what, what about you? I'm going to turn the tables on you. What, oh, what is the one thing? What is the one thing you think we should carry forwards? It can't be about horses. <laughs> yeah, we need more horses. <laughs> <laughs> Something that was talked about a lot over within the sector for like the past sort of eight to ten years around innovation, and that's test and learn and fail fast. And yeah. I think that's stuff that that some charities actually haven't done because they've just gone, oh my God, it's too much, we're not going to ask, or it feels inappropriate and found reasons not to do stuff. Um, But those who have tested things like, I don't know, doing an online quiz and it it was an absolute balls up or, you know, and learning from that and doing it it better next time because you've learned from it. Um, Testing and learning and just getting out there and doing things, I think because people have felt that a lot of organizations have felt that they had to do something so they have and they've learned a lot from it so there's that but I don't think that's something that's necessarily new it's something that we've been talking about for a long time and then actually those who hadn't started doing it have actually gone shit we better do it but I think that uh, what you just you just beautifully articulated was that blurring of hierarchies and I think that would just be incredible as something that genuinely comes out of this that we give people the flexibility to do their roles. Something else that has been, that I have found absolutely fantastic is virtual conferences as well. And it is is pretty boring sitting at your desk for like 12 hours being like, I feel like I should know all of this stuff. And uh, yeah, but like the stuff that Nikki and Simon have done with fundraising everywhere has been brilliant. Just like genuinely, genuinely fantastic content. And um, the IFC one as well that has been free is brilliant. So um, I think that that has completely changed how people will access training. I genuinely think it's completely transformed stuff. And um, I sit on the IOF committee for national convention. And obviously that's digital this year. And it's an amazing program and there is a cost for most organisations to go to it, which is a debate that I'm not going to get into because, like, Twitter just will get all over it. Just going to open that can of worms, mate? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go into that. But, um, yeah, being able to access incredible content online, whether you pay a little bit for it or whether you get it for free, is just, yeah, yeah. revolutionised things. No, totally. And I think, you know... The- Big public shout out to Nikki and Simon because I think what they're doing is amazing. But also what I love about what they're doing is that, you know, I you know, I've been in the sector for over 20 years, but I look at like speaker agendas and go, I've no idea who that is, no idea who that is. All these people are half my age, and that's fucking brilliant. Do you know what I mean? There's a sort of mm-hmm. democratization going on there that digital enables anyway, but you know, in, in terms of their approach and what they're trying to achieve, I think it's brilliant. You know, and what the sector doesn't need at the moment is a load of gurus, but what it needs is, you know, willing participants to change, and we've all got a role to play in that. Do you know what I mean? And that's that's brilliant. Yeah. While we're having a bit of a Nicky Simon loving, a conversation that I had with Nicky, like, I think at the beginning of the year, because we're both on convention board, was like, how there are obviously some people in the sector who are who are less sort of carry sherry and supportive of stuff, but but broadly, there's so much social need. There is enough work to go round, you know, in terms of like freelancers and agencies working together and not sort of working against each other. And I think that's something that they're both 
very good at as well you know giving it give it using their platform and and giving a leg up to people as well that is the way forward do you know what i mean i've Mm. always been massively collegiate in my approach my approach has always been talk to people be free with your knowledge and the work will come and that's up until lockdown that that did pretty well <laughs> but yeah, you know, we think both it, have time to talk to each other right now. Yeah, except we can have a three-hour chat about horses. You know, when else could we do that? Definitely. <laughs> you know, when I started my fundraising career, there there was only the IFC convention. You know, that that was basically it. And it, because the, the sector was structured like that, it built these gurus. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. there was this, this once-a-year platform. And in Amsterdam, just, like, are you talking about IFC in Amsterdam? Uh, no, I'm talking about just iOS back in oh, the right. day. Yeah, and it, you know the the divide between the people on stage, you know, most of which hadn't done any sort of executionable work for many a year. You know, doing their guru thing in their chart suits and whatever. The divide between them and the people in the audience was just vast. And mm-hmm. you look at kind of what's happening now. That that divide is shrinking, and it's just yeah. about, it's about people and you know people and culture. It all boils down to that yeah beautiful okay right last question is have you got a book film or ethos that has inspired your work right i've I've been thinking about that like because i'm your i'm your ex-art school arty farty sods do you know what i mean so up until pandemic there's loads of you know brilliantly obscure and uh, and amazing books and and films and and poems that i could quote you but genuinely during lockdown i just haven't i haven't got the capacity for that anymore like i sent her the message the other day that i feel that i'm 95 percent emotionally full all of the time and it just takes a little thing to tip me over into hysterical laughter or to cry my eyes out so i've just been dipping into stuff so i'm not i'm not going to pin myself down to a particular book or, or particular anything i think a lot of dark comedy helps and we both have a mutual appreciation of, of dark comedy. And like, like, when was it? Last couple of Saturdays ago, I just blitzed two, both series of Nighty Night. Uh, you see Nighty Night? Do you, no. you, you in particular, absolutely <laughs> love it. But, you the know, horses in it. There are, it is all horses, yeah. <laughs> There's a horse wearing lipstick, another one in big wig, it's hilarious. <laughs> But yeah, just yeah, dark, dark comedy has kind of helped me out quite. Yeah, I've, I've just been talking to people. Talking to people has replaced my sort of half-hour book read, or you know, dipping into a film or whatever. What about you? Not that I'm turning the tables again. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't do the book, film, or ethos thing. But I think in terms of what, what I've been watching, <laughs> listening to recently. Like we sort of binge a little bit on stuff and then just don't watch TV for months and then we have a little bit of a binge. So we actually watched um, Normal People. Have you yeah. watched that? I did. I, I think the only person in the world who sort of fell out of love with it pretty quickly. It was, it was have you read earnest. the book? No, I haven't. No. Oh my goodness. I read the book last year and I was like, I was just, I just felt like this, <laughs> this loss at the end of it because they were right. out of my lives and then I just think it's like one of the best tv adaptations ever but um but it was like yeah it was like oh a bit a bit draining a bit emotional and then the last thing I read sort of before lockdown to be fair it was around Christmas time was recommended by Louise first when I had when I did the podcast with her about diversity and it was why I'm no longer talking to white people about race and that was pretty illuminating but like pretty heavy going. So during lockdown, I was like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go old school with my reading. And I've got uh, Daphne du Maurier, my cousin Rachel. Now I've read Rebecca is like, oh my God, my favourite thing ever. Done Jamaica in. It's called My Cousin Rachel. And I'm halfway through it. And oh my God, I just need to get back to Cornwall and and find out what's happening there. Nice. Um, (laughs) What I have been watching with the kids. Um, on just on YouTube, like when we wake up at six AM and can't be bothered to move, so we sit in bed with a cup of tea and and we'll watch some something on YouTube. But I try to keep it relatively, you know, wholesome and educational. So I've been like, <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> been watching baby rhinos. Baby rhinos? What, just yeah. about, running around? Generally, yeah. So okay. there's, a, there's this baby rhino called Omni who was, like, abandoned. And so he was hand-raised, but in the wild. And then there's a little, there's a little warthog called Digby. Oh, and they're mates, and it's really cute. And there's a voiceover. What, they knock them out together? Yeah. Cool. So, like, the little birds that would usually pick off the ticks off Omni, the baby rhino, won't go near him because he's, like, around human. So, yeah. um, so Digby gets involved, scratches all the ticks off and everything, and then, uh, then the voiceover at the end, it's obviously a clip from, I don't know, BBC Earth or something. Something like there will come a point where Omni will outgrow Digby's friendship and that will be the and end. Eat him. <laughs> he's, he's missed the, the biggest and most influential relationships of his life. Rhino bulls can be very aggressive to other rhinos and his first meeting with a rhino bull may be his last. End of clip. It's like, oh my God. Children in tatters. <laughs> well, Nature they've not passed on to it. But I'm like, oh my God. And I've watched that a lot. I might do that. Do you know if the Donkey Sanctuary still has Donkey Cam? I used to love that. Just, <laughs> I know like, a lot of zoos are doing stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. If ever you're feeling a bit low, just whack on Donkey Cam. Donkey Ideal for you with your backgrounds. Yeah. Just gambling around. <laughs> cool. Right. Shall we wrap it up? Yeah, how'd you do that then? I just say like, should we wrap it up? Then we say that's, that's so good well. chat. Oh, that was <laughs> excellent chat. Beth, you're an absolute big shout out to Beth. This is my favourite podcast, and it's been an absolute pleasure to come on and talk shit with you. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you. <laughs> The three key highlights from this chat for me are Firstly, in relation to fundraising during the crisis, the charities that have been able to scale quickly have been the ones doing really well. Cutting through internal challenges and not having to wait like three weeks for a leadership team meeting to gain approval is really important and hopefully this is a cultural shift that charities doing it well at the moment will be able to keep. Secondly, connecting with people on a more personal level. For me, people across the sector being more open, available to chat and ultimately supporting each other during the crisis has been a signature mark of lockdown. Not being within an organisation myself, this is something that I've really valued as a freelancer. And within organisations, there's been a blurring of hierarchies. Now, if we're honest, this has primarily been driven by necessity, but it's key to empowering individuals and teams to deliver. And again, hopefully this will continue. And thirdly, think of yourself or your organisation as a startup. So Wayne talks about an approach he takes in some workshops is to ask people what their organisation would look like if it were a startup, i.e., if they got to start from scratch. It reminds me of getting lost on a walk in the Lake District a few years ago and asking someone for directions to a certain place, and they responded, Well, I wouldn't start from here. So there's clearly value in thinking about things as if you had a blank piece of paper and removing yourself, albeit temporarily, from the challenges you're facing as a result of hierarchy, culture or structure, for example. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast and hearing lots about horses inadvertently. Um, Do feel free to share it and do feel free to connect with me or drop me a line. Thanks very much.